become one of the most dedicated, influential Christians in all of human history. Known as the apostle to the Gentiles, known also as the author of 13 of the 27 New Testament books, known as a great missionary evangelist, it all begins right here in Acts chapter number 9. And of course, considering the great impact that Saul made on behalf of the gospel, the great impact that his life continues and his writing continues to have on us still today, uh, we must, I believe, include this chapter as one of, as one of the great chapters in the Bible. If you are saved today, if you know Christ as your Savior today, then you have a story to tell about how you came to know Christ. And I want you to know something. The world needs to hear your story. The world needs to hear my story. I want to ask this question. Who was the last person? Who was the last person you shared your story with? I'm not talking about the story about how you met your spouse or about how you had your children or the story about how you've been successful in business and, and maybe in life and leadership. I'm talking about who was the last person that you shared your story of conversion with, of how you came to know Jesus Christ as your, as your Savior. Can you remember who that person was that you shared your faith with? Bill Bright of Campus Crusade for Christ once remarked, he said, many surveys which we have helped to take around the world indicate, now get a hold of this, indicate that approximately 98% of the Christians who are alive do not regularly introduce others to the Savior. In other words, only 2%, if his, if his surveys are correct, if the statistics are right, there are only 2% of believers uh, who are actively sharing their faith with other people. Now think about that. Of the many people that are here this morning, uh, take just a small, a small fraction of that and, and assume that maybe those are the only people in the entire congregation of the Cleveland Baptist Church that are regularly sharing their faith. Uh, perhaps we should make a commitment to share our story as often as we can. Saul's testimony is recorded for us here, but I want you to know that if you'll read the rest of the New Testament from Acts 9 all all the way on, you will discover that Saul regularly was in the habit of sharing with others his story about how he came to know Christ as a Savior. In fact, we find him giving his testimony, not just it's listed for us here in Acts 9, but we find him also sharing it in Acts chapter number 22, as well as Acts chapter number 26. He references his conversion and how he came to know Christ in 1 Corinthians 15, as well as Galatians 1, Philippians 3, and 1 Timothy chapter number one. And can I say that the story of your conversion should be repeated often just as Paul told his story over and over and over again. Howard Hendricks once said, in the midst of a generation screaming for answers, Christians are stuttering. What exactly is so significant about one's conversion? And the question is this, does it really make that big of a difference in a life? Does everyone come to know Christ in the exact same way? I want to share with you by way of introduction just a couple of thoughts about why your conversion is so important. Can I say that your conversion is important because it is how you passed from death unto life. 
Your conversion is important because it's the day, it is the day that you passed from death to life. Jesus said in John 5, 24, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life. Interesting, it's put that way. It doesn't say will have everlasting life. Will someday have everlasting life. No, no, the word half is used there. That means that it is a present possession. If you believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, on that day that you accepted Christ as your personal savior, he gave you then, he gave you everlasting life. And I just want you to know something. The Bible is clear in John chapter number 11 that Christians, listen, Christians never die. Let that sink in for a moment and let that rejoice your heart because there's not a person in this room that doesn't possess some, some fear on a, on, a, on a surface level of death. What's that going to be like and how am I gonna handle all of that? And yet Jesus told Martha, if you believe in me, you'll never die. You'll just, you'll just, you'll just change where you're living. That's all that happens at death. You, you might, you might die physically, but you never cease, listen, you never cease to live spiritually. No, if you believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, you have eternal life. You have it right now. You're not going to get it someday, but you have it right now. So your conversion is important. Don't you suppose your family needs to hear, hear about the day that you pass from death to life? Don't you suppose that they would want to be made aware of that? That they ought to at very least know that, 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 that you, are, you are a man who is never going to die, that you're going to live forever somewhere, specifically a place the Bible calls heaven. But not only is your conversion important because it's how you passed from death to life, but your conversion is important because it, it impacts your life down here as well as your eternal destiny. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse number 17, therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. I, I, I just want you to know something, that, that your, your conversion is important because it doesn't just give you eternal life someday, but it gives you a new life down here. It, it gives you a new purpose for living. It gives you a new set of values, a, a, a new set of, a, a, of, of influences to lead you and to guide you throughout this life. Now, the circumstances of our conversion might vary. For instance, maybe some of you were saved as young children, while others of you perhaps were saved later in life as adults. Maybe some of you were saved in a church service. You heard a message preached during a church service and maybe you responded to an invitation. You came down to the front and you allowed one of the person workers to take a Bible and show you how you could be saved. Some of you might have been saved in your home, maybe in your bedroom or in the living room. Some of you, maybe you got saved in a car while you were driving somewhere. Maybe you got saved while you were watching television. Maybe you were watching some form of religious programming and a, and a gospel message was given and you humbled your heart and you repented of your sin and you placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior. Some of you maybe were saved out of great sin. Maybe as you think about your life before you came to know Christ, boy, there's a lot of things that you're ashamed of. 
A lot of things that perhaps you don't tell a whole lot of people that you might have been involved in because, because of the shame that that type of lifestyle brings. And while others of you maybe were not really involved in all that wicked of a lifestyle, at least in an outward sense when you came to Christ. But I want you to know something. While the circumstances vary about how we came to know Christ and when we came to know Christ and what we were like before we came to know Christ, can I say this? Listen, we are all saved the exact same way by God's grace, through our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the only way to be saved. Listen, no one was ever saved because they got in a baptistry tank. No one was ever saved because they were a good person. No one has ever been saved because they put a certain amount of money in the offering basket. And no one was ever saved because they participated in a Lord's Supper service and they drank some fruit of the vine and they had some unleavened bread. Listen, that doesn't save anyone. Only people can be saved through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, which was freely shed by him for us and we believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and we are saved. The Bible says in Ephesians 2 verses 9 and 10, for by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. You, you know what I would do? You know what I'd do if I could save myself? I'd let the whole world know about it. You better believe I'd let the whole world know about it. I mean, I would, I, I would every, time you, every time you came around me, I'd talk about how great I was. And I'd let you know, hey, I'm going to heaven and here's why. Because I did this and I did that. God says, it's not gonna work that way. First of all, you can't save yourself. It's impossible. It can't be done. But if you could, boy, you'd walk around, you'd walk around and you'd boast and you'd brag about it. Listen, listen my salvation has nothing to do with me. It has nothing to do with me. I'm saved today because of the glorious grace of my Savior, Jesus Christ, and because of his willingness to suffer, to bleed, and to die on my behalf. If you're here today and you are, con- you are lost, if you're, you've never been converted, you've never been saved or born again, I want to urge you here this, this morning to settle that today. Don't leave this place. I've said this before, if I were here today and I had some level of uncertainty about my eternal destiny, if I didn't know for sure that when I die, I was going to go be with God in heaven, I would not get on my car and I would not pull out onto Tiedemann Road without making sure, without settling for sure that heaven is my homeless and life is too uncertain. It's too uncertain. We never know. We never know when, when it's our time to go. We never know how we're going to go. You may be here today and you may be in the prime of your life physically. You may be able to do everything that you ever wanted to do, maybe at the peak of your physical ability. And yet I just want you to know something. That does not mean that death cannot visit you. Listen, people die in a myriad of different ways. People die suddenly. Some, some people die a prolonged death in which they're sick for a long period of time and they can sort of see it coming. Listen, I don't know how you're gonna die and you don't know how I'm gonna, die. I'm gonna die, but here's what we do know. We do know we are going to die. We don't know when that's going to be. And the word of God, the word of God warns us. It tells us to be prepared, to be prepared to meet our God. And so if you're here today and you're uncertain that you're truly converted, and I'd settle that today. I would, not, I would not take another day. I would not wait another day on that. I would settle it today. If you're here today and you know that you are converted, I want to urge you to thank God with a grateful heart and then do what you can to bring others to Christ. 
Now we're given in this great chapter of the Bible, we're given several insights about Saul's conversion. I want us to discover these things together here in this great chapter of God's word. Three basic thoughts that I want to leave with you here today. And and, and so if you'll follow along, I I would appreciate that. The Bible uh, indicates in verses one and two that we learn this truth about conversion, Saul's conversion. And that is this, we learn that unconverted people give evidence of their need for conversion. In verses one and two, we discover in our text, unconverted people, listen, almost always give evidence of their need for conversion. Would you look at how Saul was living prior to how he came to know Christ? The Bible says that he was breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord And he had even gone so far as to go into the high priest and he desired of him, verse number two, letters to Damascus to the synagogues that if he found any of this way, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. Did did you know that, that almost without fail, almost without fail, the only faith, the only faith that embraces and accepts the idea of, uh, of freedom of religion, freedom to believe any which way you want to believe, listen, is, is the faith of the gospel. Did you know that? D- did you know that if you study history, you'll study church history, you'll find that just about every other group that believes in coming to, to, to getting to heaven any other way than through Jesus Christ, at some point, at some point, they have used threatenings and slaughter against other people to try to get them to do what they think they ought to do. And did you know that the only, the only faith group that has ever said, listen, we are going to preach the gospel to you and we're going to allow you to make the decision that you want to make in that moment. We're going to beg with you and we're going to plead with you that you'll accept Jesus Christ, your personal savior, but we are not going to force you. No, not with a gun. No, not with a knife. Not with any other form of coercion. We're simply going to allow the Holy Spirit of God to work in your heart. Did you know that the gospel, those that believe the gospel, primarily those the only people that have ever approached it that way? Here we see Saul prior to his conversion and literally he is breathing out threatenings and slaughter. He is doing what he can uh, to make life miserable for other people so that they will recant or walk away from this way, the faith of the gospel. You know, as believers, we're often astounded by the deeds of the wicked I'm thinking to myself, just this week, the United States Senate passed a bill to codify federal recognition of same-sex marriage by a vote of 62 to 37. Now, I want you to know that as a church, we would stand against such a decision. I mean, as converted, Bible-believing people, we would stand against that. We believe that marriage is between a man and a woman. And by the way, that is a covenant, that is a covenant for life. That is a commitment for life. That's what marriage is. So we would stand against any other form of marriage. We would stand against marriage between a man and a man. We'd stand against marriage between a a, a woman and a woman. We would stand against marriage between a man and two women or two women and one man. Listen, anything other than what God designed, anything other than what God designed, we would stand against. We have to. We're Bible-believing people who have been converted. God has already spoken on what marriage is and what it is not. I want you to also know, by the same token, as we were saying a moment ago, we are not in favor of mistreating or hating people involved in this type of lifestyle. That, that wouldn't be right either. 
It wouldn't be right for us to, uh, to target them in some way. It wouldn't, be, it wouldn't be right for us to say evil and nasty things about them. Uh, it wouldn't be right for us to do anything other than just to teach them what God's way is and to stand against any other way other than God's way. But I want, I want, I want, I want you to know that we do wish, we do wish for people to know that, that that type of lifestyle is a violation of God's created order and that it also destroys one's body while also breeding much confusion and heartache in a life. Now, I want you to know that's just one example of many in our world that, 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 um, that those who do not know Christ will often give evidence of their great need for him. In other words, unconverted people, they, they readily embrace lifestyles and, and, and things that, that go against God's word. You know what they're doing? They're giving evidence. They're giving evidence of their need for conversion. They're, they're telling the whole world, I'm lost and I, and, and I need, I need to be saved. I don't know Christ as my personal savior. Now Saul, prior to his conversion, was an enemy of Christ. And he was an enemy of his church. Look in verses four and five. The interaction that he has with Christ, look what Christ says to him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? You know what Jesus is saying? He's saying, Saul, you're, you're not coming after people, you're coming after me. Verse number five, the Bible says, and he said, who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. Now, let me just pause here for just a moment and say when someone actively resists a church, they're not resisting a group of people, they're resisting Jesus Christ himself. Because the Bible tells us that the church is the, is the body of Christ and it is also the bride of Christ. So when you, listen, when you say, when you say mean and, and, and hurtful and nasty things about a church, you're not speaking ill of me. You're speaking ill of him. When, when, you, try to, when, when you try to divide and, and, and you try to manipulate uh, the church and you try to make life difficult for the believers in the church or for the pastor, whoever it might be, listen, you're not coming after me. You're coming after him. You see, Saul thought he was going after people, men and women who were part of this way. But Jesus looked at it far differently. Jesus said, you're persecuting me. You're coming after me. And I take that, I take that personally. Saul was on his way to Damascus for the sole purpose of persecuting the believers there. Saul was convinced, he was convinced that he was doing the right thing, that he was actually pleasing God by doing this. He wrote the following about this particular period in his life. He said in 1 Timothy 1, verses 12 and 13, and I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who hath enabled me for that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Look what he says. He says, who was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious. That word injurious, it means violent. I was, I was violent in what I was doing. He says, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. I want to spend just a moment on that last phrase where he said, I did it ignorantly in unbelief. When Christ prayed, do you remember when Christ prayed as he was hanging on the cross? And do you remember what he prayed? He, he prayed these words. He said, Father, forgive them. Why? For they know not what they do. Now I want you to connect what Jesus prayed on that cross to what Saul was doing here in this 
particular text and how he, how he describes it for us in 1 Timothy 1 in verse number 13. I, 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 want you to, I want you to understand that the mercy of God, listen, the mercy of God is available for everyone. But I also want you to understand, I believe that it is especially available for those who sin ignorantly. In other words, you know what Saul's telling you, Saul, Saul's saying, listen, I, I was doing all of this and I was convinced that I was doing God a favor. I did, not, I did not believe that I was actively resisting God. I thought, I thought I was doing what he would want me to do. Now contrast that with some who, we know exactly what this book says and what we ought to be doing and how we ought to be living. And yet we choose to go our own way. In other words, we don't sin ignorantly through unbelief, but we sin, listen, we sin on purpose. We sin by design. Now, is the mercy of God still available? I believe, I believe that it is if you'll repent of that sin. But I want you to know something. It is especially available for those who sin ignorantly. You see, we live in a world, we live in a world that is so divided and you spend time with certain people and they are convinced, they are convinced that what they believe and what they're teaching and what they, how they're living is right, even though it's, it's completely contradictory to this book. Now, it may be that they don't know what this book teaches. It may, be, it may be that they have been taught that this book is in God's word. To them, this book is just a collection of stories. It's just written by man. But in other words, they're doing what they're doing and they're doing it ignorantly through unbelief. You, do, you know, do, you know, do you know that, that, that the, the prayer of Christ is available to them? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. What about those of us who have grown up in a church like this one, or maybe it is this one, and we know exactly what the Bible teaches. We know exactly what God would have us to do and how he would have us to live, and yet every day we give evidence of the fact that, you know what, I, I know what I'm supposed to do, but I'm not going to do it. You know, we, we ought to expect that unconverted people are going to give evidence of their need for conversion. The truth of the matter is that converted people ought not to give evidence of their need to be converted. Converted people ought to demonstrate with their lives every moment, every step along the way that they're truly born again. As believers, as believers, don't we often curse the darkness? Jesus, I want you to know, he had a heart of compassion toward those who were blinded by darkness. He, he had a heart of compassion towards those who were unconverted and gave evidence of their need for conversion. One Sunday evening, William Booth, uh, the founder of the Salvation Army, was walking in London with his son Bramwell, who was at that time about 12 or 13 years old. Mr. Booth surprised his son by taking him into a saloon that evening. The place was crowded with men and women, many of them bearing on their faces the marks of vice, sin, wickedness, and crime. Some were absolutely drunk. The fumes of alcohol and tobacco filled the room with a certain poison, Willie, Booth said to his son, these are our people. These are the people I want you to live for and bring to Christ. Years later, Bramwell Booth wrote, the impression of that night never left me. You know, Saul was such a person. His persecution gave evidence that he was unconverted and it also revealed just how much he needed to be changed by Christ. Can I say that we should never hold unconverted people to any standard except that they will live sinfully and wickedly? That shouldn't surprise us. 
We shouldn't be blown away that 62 senators in the United States of America would reflect the fact that probably the vast majority of our, of our country does not know Christ. That shouldn't surprise us. It shouldn't surprise us that evil and wicked men and women would, uh, would do what is politically expedient as opposed to doing what is biblically right. It shouldn't surprise us at all. So often we're shocked and we're filled with dismay that unconverted people live lives that are full of sin and wickedness. should never surprise us. No, the conversion story of Saul reveals this, this truth that unconverted people give evidence of their need for conversion. But you know what it also reveals? It reveals this great truth that Jesus, he is able to save to the uttermost. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you're guilty of. It doesn't matter how you were raised or what you've done in your past. Listen, Jesus Christ is more, more than able to save to the uttermost. Find the most wicked person in this room. I don't know who it is. It might even be me. But find the most wicked person in this room and you'll find someone who is not, who is not beyond the power and the ability of Christ to save their soul. I'm trying to eliminate some excuses. There may be some of you sitting here to say, I'd, I'd like to get saved, but I just, I just don't think he would have me. Oh, he would have you. He is desperate to save you. He died on a cross to save you. Unconverted people give evidence of their need for conversion. But notice, secondly, we discover that conversion changes everything. Conversion changes everything. In verses three to six, we discover Saul coming to Christ, and we discover the difference that it made in his life. In 1891, Mel Trotter met and married a woman by the name of Lottie Fisher in Pearl City, Illinois. Lottie soon after was horrified to discover that her husband was, a, was an absolute alcoholic. And Trotter would lose his job in Pearl City, and he and his wife moved to a more rural area in an attempt to help him stay sober. There he lost another job, and from there they moved to Davenport, Iowa, where Mel tried his hand at selling insurance, a job he lost the day after his son was born. Trotter began leaving home for extended periods of time, weeks at a time, and when he returned after one period of drunkenness, he discovered his two-year-old son had died. Believing that he bore the responsibility for the child's death, he considered suicide. He stood by the coffin and swore, swore that he would never touch liquor again. However, two hours later, he broke his vow and he was drunk. Abandoning his family, Mel hopped a train for the city of Chicago where things did not improve. And there he ended up homeless and suicidal. In January of 1897, he sold his shoes for another drink and then decided he would go to Lake Michigan and drown himself. On his way to die, Mel was pulled inside the Pacific Garden Rescue Mission. There he heard of God's redemption from another alcoholic, and he gloriously accepted Jesus Christ as his Savior. Later, Trotter would be asked how he knew that he was saved. How do you know for sure you're saved, Mel? And here was the answer. He said, I was there when it happened, January 19th, 1897, 10 minutes past 9 o'clock p.m. Central Time, Pacific Garden Mission, Chicago, Illinois, USA. Through Christ, Mel conquered his addiction and claimed 2 Corinthians 5, 17 as his favorite verse. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Mel quickly found a job, was reunited with his wife, and became very active at the Pacific Garden Mission. And in January of 
1900, he went with the mission superintendent to Grand Rapids, Michigan, where he would later become the superintendent of a new mission. And under his influence, under his influence, many other missions were established in other towns that existed to help people who were living like Mel had lived prior to knowing Jesus Christ as his savior. I'm just simply saying, listen, only the superabounding grace of God can change a life like that. And I would just say, listen, if, you're, if your life is no different before you got saved uh, to what it is now that you are saved, something is wrong because conversion changes everything. It changes everything. Number one, it unites a holy God with a sinful man. Now you'll notice there's a little typo there in your notes. And then it I say, I, I put in there, it unites a holy man with a sinful man. And I suppose that's partly true because Jesus Christ is who we're, we're united with. But in my mind, I wanted it to say a holy God with a sinful man and my fingers just got going too fast on the keyboard, I suppose. But what, is, what, what, what changes? What changes when someone is converted? Well, well a, a holy God and a sinful man are united together as one. Look at the question that Saul asks. Verse number five, who art thou, Lord? Who art thou, Lord? Saul, by his own admission, did many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. He says that in Acts 26 and verse number nine. Here, here, however, he calls him Lord. Prior to conversion, listen, every one of us are enemies of God. The Bible says in Romans 8 and verse number 7, because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. According to Romans 3.23, all men are sinners, and as such we fall short of God's high and lofty and holy standard. Conversion, listen, conversion is not God stooping down to our level, nor, nor is conversion us somehow climbing up to his level by our own ability and strength. No, no, listen. Conversion is God and man finding peace with one another on the merits of Jesus Christ. The Bible says in Romans 5 verses 9 and 10, much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Again, we are not united with God by our good works. We are not united with God by our baptism. We are not united with God by any other religious deed or ordinance. We are united with him only through the shed blood and death of his son, Jesus Christ. And when Saul realized Jesus was who he claimed to be and that he had done what he did, the Bible tells us that he was converted by faith in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So conversion unites a holy God and a sinful man. But notice, secondly, conversion humbles a prideful man. Conversion humbles a prideful man. Would you look in verse number six? And he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? Saul was educated. He was gifted. And he was respected. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He demanded the death of Stephen, and that's exactly what happened. Likely, it had been quite some time since Saul was in awe or full of amazement of anyone other than himself. He feared no one, and everyone feared him. 
But here we find him trembling and astonished. Can I say that at conversion, a man is humbled as he considers his sinfulness. And then he considers the great lengths to which Christ had to go in order to redeem him. He also is humbled to think of how close, how close he was to eternal death and suffering prior to his conversion. At conversion, a man acknowledges his life is no longer his own, that he has been bought with a price, and that he should now live to glorify his Savior. Saul's immediate response upon his conversion was one of great humility. The question, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? Why? Because conversion humbles a prideful man. Can I say also, thirdly, conversion redirects a man's life. I came across an interesting paragraph that someone had written. I think it sort of makes a connection with what we're trying to say here. He said, the motorhome has allowed us to put all the conveniences of home on wheels. A camper, or someone who likes to go camping, no longer needs to contend with sleeping in a sleeping bag, cooking over a fire, or hauling water from a stream. Now he can park a fully equipped home on a cement slab in the midst of a few pine trees and hook up to a water line, a sewer line, and even have electricity. One motorhome I saw recently had a satellite dish attached to the top. No more bother with dirt, no more smoke from the fire, no more drudgery of walking to the stream. Now it is possible to go camping and never have to go outside. <laughs> we buy a motorhome with the hope of seeing new places, of getting out into the world, yet we deck it out with the same furnishings as in our living room. Thus, nothing really changes. We may drive to a new place, set ourselves in new surroundings, but the newness goes unnoticed, for we've only carried along our old setting. And then he made this connection. He said, the adventure of new life in Christ begins when the comfortable patterns of the old life are left behind. The Bible tells us that Saul, Saul's conversion redirected his life. In verse number six, he said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And the Lord said unto him, Arise, and go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. And then look in verse number 15, would you? But the Lord said unto him, speaking of Ananias about Saul, Go thy way, for he is a chosen vessel unto me, to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings, and the children of Israel, for I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. Can I say once again, if little has changed in your life since your conversion, you're not doing it right. The Bible is clear that in Christ, all things become new. Do you know the change in Saul's life? It produced amazement in others. Would you look in verse number 21? The Bible says, but all that heard him were amazed and said, is not this he that destroyed them which called on his name in Jerusalem and came hither for that intent that he might bring them bound unto the chief priests? How long has it been since your new life in Christ amazed someone? How long has it been since they said, you know, before you, before you came to know Christ, you used to do this, but you don't do that anymore. What happened? Giving us an opportunity to tell them Christ happened. Jesus Christ moved in and he changed my life. Paul, excuse me, Saul, he would be remembered as a persecutor. And yet now here he is preaching the same message that he had terrorized and persecuted others for preaching. 
His life and message not only amazed the believers in Damascus, but it also confounded, that word confound means to perplex the Jews who still embraced Judaism. Look in verse 22. But Saul increased the more in strength and confounded the Jews which dwelt at Damascus, proving that this is very Christ. Does your life, since your conversion, does it amaze anyone? Does it confound anyone? Saul went from being a Pharisee of the Pharisees to a Christian of the Christians. His new mission and purpose in life from God was to preach Christ to the Gentiles and Christ to great men and to suffer many things for his sake. That's what the new purpose in his life would be. He would go from being the persecutor to being persecuted. But that's what God had for him. And what does God have for you? Do you know? Do you know what God's purpose for your life is? So many people, Christians included, so many people are just sort of meandering through life. They're just doing enough to get by from day to day, and they really have no clue why God created them and why God put them here on this earth. I'm talking about Christians. I'm talking about Bible-believing people have no clue why they're here, what God has designed them to do, what God has created them to do. I can say this beyond a shadow of a doubt, I believe God created me to preach his word. I love, I love doing what I get to do. I believe God created me to, to be there, to, to help families and to help people as they deal with some of the difficult moments in life. God created me to tell other people about his son, Jesus Christ. What did God create you to do? And are you doing it? Are you living for that purpose? Listen, I want you to know something. Life is way too short. Life's way too short to spend time doing anything other than doing what God created and designed us to do. Notice the third and final thought. is conversion, number three, provides us with a new family. Conversion provides us with a new family. I want you to look specifically, if you would, in verse number 17. Saul's Saul's arrival in Damascus, of course, was a terrifying thing. One of the men who was, who was in that city that was a believer uh, had gotten word that Saul was coming. His name was Ananias. God showed up one night, and, and God revealed himself to Ananias in a vision. He said, listen, Saul is coming to town. He's here already, and I want you to go, and I want you to confront him, and I want you to share this message with him. Ananias if you read verses 10 to 19, you'll find Ananias wanted no part of that mission. He said, Lord, we're talking about the same Saul, right? Yeah, we're talking about the same one. Well, he's, he's here to arrest us. He's here to throw us in prison. He, 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 he's responsible for the death of Stephen, faithful man in the church of Jerusalem. I'm not going to see him. And the Lord, Lord let him know, listen, it's going to be okay. I've got a mission for him. I've called him, and, and we just read what he had, had, had repurposed his life to do. And when Ananias came into that room, and he saw Saul for the first time, I want you to notice how he addressed him. Would you look in verse number 17? And Ananias went his way and entered into the house, and putting his hands on him said, now read the next two words. I mean, together. <laughs> Brother Saul. That's significant, isn't it? He didn't call him friend. He didn't call him fellow. He called him brother. Brother Saul. 
Listen, Ananias had, had plans. His plans while Saul was in town were to avoid Saul completely. Instead, God is now asking Ananias to pursue after Saul, to find him in Damascus, and to give this message to him. This was a big ask, but Ananias was obedient to the Lord. And I have to pause here for a moment and say Ananias' faith and obedience should be highlighted here. What he was willing to do was of great significance. Can I say the life of a disciple is not often easy. It is filled with challenging tasks and steps of great faith. Upon arriving at Saul's house, Ananias addresses Saul with a beautiful title, brother. You know, there are always going to be some that are harder to love than others. But at the end of the day, can I remind you that we are brothers and sisters. And he is our father. Ananias, Barnabas, Silas, Luke, Timothy, Titus, Philemon, the list could go on and on. All would never have connected with Saul apart from his conversion. Now look around you. See someone sitting near you. And think to yourself, except for Christ, I would never know this person. Who enriches my life. And who makes my life so much better than it would be apart from that person. That's what the local church is. And without Christ, none of us would know one another. There would be no reason for us to gather this morning. There would be no reason for us to share our burdens with one another. You're going through life doing your thing. I'm going through life doing my thing. What unites us? Conversion. Knowing Christ, listen, doesn't just give us eternal life and a home in heaven. Doesn't just fundamentally transform our lives down here and give us a new purpose for living. But listen, it provides us with a brand new family. I've heard some of our folks give testimony. And they've said things like this. They've said, you know, the truth is, is that my church family, in many respects, I'm closer to than my physical family. Because my physical family doesn't love the Lord and they don't believe the Bible, I find that I am increasingly further and further separated from them. But my church family, those are the people that I discover the deepest connection with and the deepest relationship with. Can I, can I challenge and encourage us to look around this place and, and not see one another as, eh, it's just another church member, someone that we, maybe we find ourselves in competition with, but can I encourage you to look around and look at one another and say, that's my brother, that's my sister, that's family. I love them. And I want to serve them. And I want to do as much as I can to be a blessing and to be a help to them as I possibly can. If Ananias could look at Saul, and he could say, Brother Saul, can we not look at one another? And can we not refer to one another's brother and sister? And not just call them that in name only, but to treat them like they're a brother and like they're a sister. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed for just a moment.